Okay, good evening everyone, bonsoir tout le monde. I'm Trevor Page, your moderator for this evening's forum. Our timekeeper is Knud Peterson. Our timekeeper is not in his seat. <laughs> Our timekeeper is Knud Peterson. I'll introduce him later. He's the chair of the SAGPA board. Welcome, people of Lethbridge. We're really glad that you're engaged in the electoral process and that you want to know more about the candidates seeking to represent us in the House of Commons of our nation's parliament. Welcome, candidates. Thank you for your willingness to run for public office and to explain to us the main planks of your party's platform and how these differ from those of other parties. We look forward to learning why you think you are the best suited to represent the constituency of Lethbridge. Um, we heard just this afternoon that there's another candidate, Solly Kiger Payne, representing the Rhinoceros Party. Uh, he's declared his intention to run in this election too. Now, there may be other candidates as well. Um, registration doesn't close until September 30th. But there are other election forums later in the month. And we finalized the arrangements for this one a week ago. The Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs, SAGPA, is now in its 48th year. It meets every week from September to June to discuss issues of public concern, be they local, provincial, national, or international. Organizing public election forums for those seeking to represent us at various levels of government has always been at the heart of what we do. The 2015 general election comes at a time when many among us are disenchanted with the way our country is being governed. The calls for change are growing louder. Yet many, many among us are quite satisfied with the status quo and believe that stability in a changing world is what we need most. Nevertheless, an area of widespread concern is that governance at the national level has morphed into a top-down exercise with all the important decisions being taken by the PMO. But our democratic system of governance provides for our concerns to be raised in Parliament by our elected representatives. We don't just expect our MP to occupy the Lethbridge seat in the House of Commons so that whatever their party decides on whatever issue can simply be passed down to us. Of course, whichever candidate is elected next month, whichever candidate, whichever candidate is elected next month will be a rookie MP. But it would be useful if during the course of the forum, candidates would tell us a little on how they would go about representing our concerns in Ottawa. In the slate of SAGPA questions, we have one dedicated to just what are the main concerns 
of Lethbridge voters. This evening's forum will start with a two-minute introductory statement by each candidate. Right after that, candidates will be invited to draw two numbers from a hat. The numbers correspond to questions prepared by SAGPA. These were sent to all candidates one week ago, giving them time to consider their response. But they don't know which of the questions they will have to answer. That will be the luck of the draw. Candidates will have two minutes to respond to each of the SAGPA questions. They have three intervention cards. Candidates, you, you've got three of these cards each. Uh, by raising an intervention card, other candidates, that's other than the ones that are uh, dealing with a SAGPA question, but if they want to wish, wish to respond to the question, they'll be given the floor for a one-minute intervention. We'll then move to a quick-fire debate. Um, on, on topics of general interest. I'll announce the topic, and then candidates will debate each other directly, quick-fire style. I'll only intervene to prevent over-speaking or to move things along. After that, we'll have a 10-minute break before moving on to audience questions. Questioners from the audience will have one minute to pose their question which may be directed to one or a maximum of two candidates. Responses from candidates will be limited to two minutes if the question is directed to a single candidate or to one minute if directed to two candidates. Questioners will be limited to asking one question until all audience members wishing to speak have done so. Thereafter, follow-up questions or new questions will be entertained. Well, that's the format for this evening's forum, so now on with the debate. Uh, Knud, our timekeeper, Knud Peterson, please identify yourself. <laughs> and Knud, if you would ask each candidate to draw two numbers from the hat. And read out the number to me so I can mark it down on the questions. So Jeffrey Cap has one and ten. Okay. Rachel Harder has number eight and five. Cass McMillan has number four and number nine. Uh, one second, can I have Mike Pine's numbers, please? Six and three. Thank you. 
2 and 7. 2 and 7. Okay, well then we'll move now to the introductory debates, for, uh, the introductory statements first by the candidates. And Jeffrey Cap, you have the floor for two-minute introductory statement. My name is Jeffrey Cap. I'm an ordinary person who's been a cashier at Walmart, a security guard, a customer service rep. I know that most of us don't have bottomless pockets for the government to siphon taxes out of. I'd like you to send me to Ottawa to remind the other MPs of that reality of life for so many Lethbridge residents. I'd like to tell them that we must stop borrowing money that we are making our children and grandchildren pay back. I'd like to tell them how offensive it is, given the low reputation Canadians accord to politicians, that we now have to pay for 30 more of them as of this election, plus their offices, staff, and expense accounts. I'd like to challenge them if they dare to bring in a bill to raise their salaries, are they really that hard done by that they would need an increase? So I want to go to Ottawa for you and remind them that we are not here to pay for their indulgences. They're there to serve real needs and provide for ideal conditions for families to do what they do best, raise their kids and give us the next generation, to keep jobs in Canada by protecting our industries to protect our children's legacy by forcing industry to stop polluting and to clean as they work. To help victims of crime by mandating restitution from offenders and to protect the innocent by rehabilitating violent offenders in prison until they are safe to come out among us again. To protect our freedom to speak our opinions, even in the presence of those who disagree to enlarge our hearts and extend the protection of our love to human life from conception to natural death and be compassionate to those facing difficulties in their lives, helping them with immediate and ongoing needs, to make the justice system work without the absurd year-long delays in getting to trial, to restore the remedies of common law, to restore those who are right and discipline those who are wrong. I will do that because I am not a privileged or wealthy person but someone who has to work each day to keep ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rachel Harder. Good evening. I stand before you tonight as one who offers a fresh perspective for this region, as one who is prepared and qualified to represent you and your families in Ottawa. I am running to become the Member of Parliament for Lethbridge because I believe in good public service, listening followed by action. I am conservative because to quote Margaret Thatcher, the facts of life are in fact conservative. Aside from love and affirmation, psychologists tell us the basic necessities in life are food, shelter and clothing. We need food in our stomachs, a roof over our heads, and clothing to wear, as do our children. For these things, we need an income. For jobs to be created, we need entrepreneurs to rise up, to take risks, and to establish businesses among us. There is no other way to create a long-lasting, sustainable job in the country of Canada, or in any other country around the world. There is no other way to support the social programs that we've come to value as Canadians. 
We need a government that understands our everyday challenges and will take a stand for these things. A government that will provide us with the necessities of life. People elect Conservatives because they expect us to develop policy that will grow the economy and create jobs. They expect us to balance the books, to stand up for victims, to care for families, to advocate for seniors, to lower taxes, and to deliver services at a quality of excellence. People elect Conservatives because they expect us to be principled, to be hardworking, to be strong, to be compassionate, true public servants. And though we haven't done everything perfectly over the years, we've done a lot of things damn well. And so as your representative, I am dedicated to meeting my constituents, listening to your concerns, and making sure that I'm a strong advocate for you in Ottawa. Thank you. Thank you. Cass McMillan. Hello, my name is Cass McMillan and I'm running for the Green Party in Lethbridge. Um, I grew up outside of the city on an acreage near Colhurst. That's where I attended both primary and secondary school. I attended the University of Lethbridge after that and then I ended up transferring out to Ottawa to continue my studies. I've been in many degrees, biology, management, geography, and eventually I found my home in history and political science because that's where I thought I'd be able to do the most good with. The Green Party, a lot of people do not know. So I find it interesting, actually, that I'm placed between the right-wing candidates and the left-wing candidates, <laughs> because that's exactly where I think we belong. On the one hand, my party is socially left. We agree a lot with the Liberals and the NDP when it comes to healthcare, education, and the environment. On the other hand, we're fiscally conservative. We agree with the right-wing parties when it comes to governmental business, the economy, taxes, and so on. So then what makes the Green Party different? Well, for starters, we have a no-heckling policy, which means that in the House of Commons, as an elected Green MP, we can actually discuss and answer the questions that are posed to us without heckling the other, the other MPs. <laughs> Another thing that separates us is that we don't have a party whip, which means that as a Green MP, I can represent my riding before my political party. That's something that the other national, or the, that the other candidates from a national party can't say. Our primary job as a Green MP is to represent our riding. If my party wants to pass something that you guys do not agree with, I can vote against my party, because that is my job. And that's why our slogan is a Canada that works together. Thank you. Thanks. Our next speaker is Cheryl Mahaden. Sorry. Okay, and good evening. I'm a farmer's daughter growing up in rural southern Alberta. I'm married and I have three adult children. My life is blessed and every day I am grateful for all that I've been given. 
For about 20 years, I've been teaching business management to college and university students, helping the next generation of Canadians learn skills to get good jobs and become successful citizens. I don't just teach them to work in business, I want them to learn to do so with integrity, to not only know stuff, but to know how to use that knowledge in positive, contributing ways. For my efforts, I've received Teaching Excellence Awards from both the Lethbridge College and the University of Lethbridge. Working as a professor is one element of my life, and volunteerism is another. I've served as President of Economic Development Lethbridge, Director of Protocol for the Alberta Summer Games, and Chair of the Mission and Social Action Committee at McKillop United Church. Currently, I sit as a board member of the United Way, and most recently, I accepted a place on the board of Lethbridge Family Services. People ask me to do things because I know that I bring a wide swath of experiences and skills to the table. They know that I work hard and they know that I get things done. That I honor my word. They know I'm connected to my community. And these and other con contributions have allowed me to be honored as a YWCA woman of distinction. Sometimes it's not your world, but just your neighborhood that you want to be better. That was the driver that had me buy a local corner store and transform it into a thriving neighborhood grocer. Lots of people thought this would never work, but I had done my research. I took a calculated risk and I was successful. I was not reckless. I made different choices in Superstore and Safeway and people liked it. This is comparable to what I offer as a new Democrat. The NDP offers people different choices than the Conservative government. Choices that reflect Canadian values of fairness, justice and opportunity. We can look after our seniors. We can give our young people affordable education and good jobs. We can do our part to save the environment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mike Pine. And given I'm the shortest, I guess it is last and least. Good can evening. Can you uh, speak closer to the mic so we can hear, please? Into the mic? Talk into the mic, Mike. Good evening. My name is Mike Pine, and I'm your federal liberal candidate for this riding. On behalf of my wife, Sheila, and my assembled family, I'd like to thank you for inviting me here tonight to share our ideas. In this age of wedge politics, with each side yelling, shouting, and belittling each other, it's important that we find common ground on which to discuss the vital issues that face us as families and citizens in this great country that we call Canada. It's easy to talk to people who agree with you. It's much harder to go out and discuss issues with those who do not agree with you. But it is vitally important we do so. We can and we must find common ground. Most of us have families whom we love and worry about all the time. I have a son over here who's a Lethbridge fireman. I have two sons that are on oil rigs out in the middle of the ocean. I worry about them every minute of the day. Once a parent, always a parent. We want them to be safe, we want them to be secure, we want them to be comfortable while they live their lives. The Liberal Party of Canada believes this as well. We are committed to helping those in the middle class by reducing the tax they pay. We've committed to a child care benefit that will supply up to $6,400 a year to help support families. We are the only party that believes in growing the economy instead of cuts that will hurt families. With the cost of money at a 30-year low and our workforce operating way below capacity, now is the perfect time 
to upgrade our crumbling infrastructure. We have large issues to dis discuss. We have large problems to solve. This election represents a prime opportunity to come together, talk together, work together for a better Canada. Thank you. Thank you, candidates, for your introductory statements. We're now moving on to the SAGPA questions. These were submitted to the candidates uh, a week ago. And the first speaker is Jeffrey Cap, and one of the questions that he drew was number one. So we're dealing, Jeffrey, with question number one, which reads, well, firstly, the question deals with fair election laws and electoral reform. Money, and lots of it, is increasingly important for political parties and candidates. Election laws have recently been changed to deal with fundraising. Other new laws cover voting eligibility requirements. Many believe that our first-past-the-post electoral system is outdated. Many major democracies have scrapped it in favor of some type of proportional representation. Where does your party stand on the Fair Elections Act and electoral reform? We need electoral reform. Our party favors a mixed member proportional system. My personal enhancement idea on this is that no party should be allowed to set the order of names for the proportional seats except for one person. All other proportional seats that a party earns should be filled by unsuccessful riding candidates ranked by the percentage of votes received in the riding. That way, voters decide who gets those seats. And those MPs owe their allegiance not to the party, but to the voters who supported their standing in that ranking. Thank you. Anyone want to intervene on that question? In which case, we're moving on to the next question. And the speaker is Rachel Harder. And it's question number eight, Rachel. And question number eight deals with pipelines and rail transportation. The Keystone XL, Northern Gateway, and Energy East pipelines have all been touted as essential project to support Canada's economic development. Pipelines are promoted as safer than rail. But rail is increasingly used to transport oil and bitumen, tying up capacity previously used to transport grain and other goods to export terminals. Where does your party stand on these pipelines and on rail transportation? Thank you. My party would support both of these mechanisms for getting commodities to market. So with regards to pipelines, we view them as an arm's length body that determine whether or not a project is safe to go forward with or not. Once an environmental assessment is done, which I'll add, Canada has most of the sting most stringent environmental laws with regards to energy development in all of the world. But once those decisions are made, uh, we know the best way to get that commodity to market. It may be rail and it may be pipeline. Now what's interesting to me is that other parties wouldn't even give it consideration. They would just shut down the possibility of development before even allowing the environmental assessment to be done. However, we believe in fostering our economy, we believe in creating jobs, and so we'll allow a good assessment to be done. 
And then once that assessment is completed, we now understand whether that should be rail or pipeline. Rail has been a key part of Canada's economic development since the country's inception. And we support that, again, because it creates jobs, it fosters our economy, it helps us as hardworking Canadians. And so this is not an argument about one form of transportation or another. This is simply an argument of, are we developing the resources that are available to us? Are we getting commodities to market? Are we creating jobs? Are we fostering a strong economy? Because if we are doing those things, then we are taking good care of Canadians. We are allowing them to take care of their families, and we are allowing social programs to be put in place for our Canadian population, which is a good thing. This is called reasonable and responsible governance. Thank you. The next speaker is Cass McMillan. Oh, intervention, sorry. Yes, rebuttal. Sorry. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if anyone read the newspaper today, but if you did, it clearly says, front page story, that the person who could become President of the United States is not going to approve Keystone. So perhaps we need to stop swimming against the current. And some things are just crazy. The NDP government is not opposed to pipelines. Allowing super tankers into the Douglas Channel is absolute madness. That doesn't mean that Kinder Morgan's $5 billion project needs to be scrapped. It means that it needs to pass the scrutiny of an environmental review that is beefed up to reverse some of the changes that the Conservative government has made, which has resulted in a lack of credibility and trust. Okay, thank you, Cheryl. We have another intervention. Go ahead, Cass. Cheryl covered the environmental concerns for it, so I'll cover the economical. The Green Party has opposed ma the majority of these high-profile projects, the Kinder Morgan, the Energy East, as well as Keystone. The reason why we oppose these pipelines is because we believe that we should be refining these products at home so that we can get the most economical benefit out of them here in Canada rather than overseas. <laughs> It makes purely economical sense to keep products here so that we can refine them, we can get the jobs out of them, we can get the most economical benefit out of them. That is why we understand that we will need pipelines to get the resources to refineries, but those refineries should be in Canada. There will be obstacles to get this. Um, there is one which would be financial obstacles, the other one would be a skilled labor source obstacle, but we believe that if we can have the political will to go about this, that we can get this benefit for Canada. Thank you. Another intervention. Yes, please, Mike, go ahead. Sorry. <clears throat> the one thing that's been missed here is the people factor. Uh, I agree with when we talk about economics and we talk about uh, the ecology. Uh, I do not agree that uh, this current government has stringent environmental laws. They've gutted the Navigable Water Act. They've silenced scientists. Uh, it's, there's, there's just no data coming in because there's nobody to supply it. But the big thing is governments can give permits 
people, communities have to give permission. And that's what we've had too much of. The government saying, okay, we're gonna allow you, Enbridge, to build this pipeline, and then the people along the route go to the courts and say, no, you can't. That never should have happened. Governments give permits, communities give permission. Kinder Morgan, <laughs> Golden Key here in Lethbridge was a prime example of that, okay? Okay, thank you. Seeing no more interventions, we'll move on to the next question. Cass McMillan, you have the floor for question four. And this question deals with our current supply management system and the impact on local agriculture were it to be scrapped. The dairy sector in Lethbridge County is a significant contributor to the economy with an annual contribution of over $90 million. There has been considerable pressure from other countries for Canada to dismantle the supply management in the dairy industry, in particular with the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. What is your party's position in respect of scrapping supply management in the agriculture sector? And if it is in favor, what measures would you advocate to protect affected farmers and prevent a negative impact on our local economy? Our current government has signed a lot of trade deals. I think that Ms. Harder, as well as the Conservatives, will agree with this. Um, but I don't think it's quite that simple. A lot of the trade deals haven't just been free trade. The Green Party supports free trade, or sorry, fair trade, that protects sovereignty, human rights, the environment, and does not undermine health, safety, consumer, or labor standards. However, a lot of these agreements, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, are, in, oops, sorry, are investment promotion, or sorry, are foreign investment promotion and protection agreements. FIPAs. We do not agree with these because FIPAs give foreign corporations and foreign countries the ability to sue Canada if we change our laws that they don't seem fit. That is why we are the only party that is opposing the TPP. For example, under these agreements, foreign tobacco companies can sue the government over health and smoking regulations. Gas companies can sue over fracking regulations. An example of this that's already being done today is that Canada actually declared that the US Big Pharma Corporation, Eli Lilly's, that their drug patents were not legit. So they are suing us for $500 million. And that comes out of taxpayers' pockets, not politicians. Germany is also undergoing one of these battles. They're being sued over an FIPA since they are trying to relocate their investment into green energy instead of their nuclear energy. So they are currently being sued for it in international courts. That is why my party, as well as myself, we do not support T the TPP or FIPAs in general because they allow foreign governments and corporations to sue Canada's government for millions and possibly even billions amounts of dollars. Thank you. Thank you. Any interventions? Jeffrey Kapp, I see first. Go ahead. Food production sovereignty should be a nation's right. If supplied management ensures milk on the table, then it is our right to have it. We have the right to feed ourselves, just as other nations should have that right. 
and not presume to try to force their products into our country. Haven't we lost enough jobs already to foreign producers? Haven't our families lost enough income earners because of shuttered factories? Thank you. Anyone else? No, in which case we'll move on to Cheryl Mahaden with question number two, which reads, well, the question deals with taxation and inequality. According to the Conference Board of Canada, inequality is increasing in Canada, and we rank poorly compared to 17 peer countries. Tax measures, along with social programs and labor laws, are the main tools available to governments to deal with inequality. How does your party intend to deal with the growing problem of inequality? Thank you. The statement, the rich get richer, didn't come out of anywhere, or come out of nowhere, sorry. And it is also alive and well here under a conservative government. I support that working hard should result in success. I think it's okay that some people have more than others. What is not okay is when some people have more at the expense of others. As the question states, the Conference Board of Canada, which is an independent research organization that delivers insights on economics, public policy, and organizational performance, has proven that inequality is increasing amongst Canadians. In December of 2013, a report of the Standing Committee on Finance presented to the House of Commons on income inequality in Canada. This report listed several pages of recommendations on how to effectively address this issue. Rather than read the report, I mean it is 82 pages, the Conservative governments introduced income splitting and doubled the TFSA. Who benefits from this? 15% of Canadians, whereby one income earner is significantly higher than the other, benefits from income splitting. That's about 15% of our population. As for doubling the TFSA and thus allowing for an increased tax avoidance strategy, only 7% benefit. The fact that 93% of current Canadians have never maxed out the original TFSA ceiling lets us know clearly who benefits the most from this tax avoidance incentive. The NDP is scrapping income splitting except for seniors' pension income, and it is also restoring the TFSA to its previous limits. Thank you. Any, yes, Rachel, you have the floor. I have an interesting quote here from the president, David Morley, of UNICEF. He is the CEO. And he says this, he says, Canada is faring better than other Western worlds, and it is due to measures that are favorable to families like tax credits, fiscal measures, and benefits that have been maintained or put in place to counter the effects of the global crisis. Interesting. So let's look at the facts, shall we? The income inequality that we see in the nation of Canada took place purely under the Liberal government from 1992 to 2005. In fact, Canada enjoys the largest and wealthiest middle class that it has ever seen. 
Furthermore, since 2006, 225,000 fewer children are living in poverty in Canada. Further still, the number, what, what we would argue as a conservative government is that the best safety net possible is in fact a job which we've created 1.3 million of. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Mike, you, is that your intervention card raised? Yes, Thank sir. you. Go ahead. You have the floor. I'm sorry, Rachel. Oh, sorry. Mike, Mike. I'm sorry, Rachel. In the eight years, in eight years, we've grown the deficit by $160 billion. $160. That's 20, that's $20 billion a year. That's $4,400 for every person in this country. That is not performance. And as far as, and in, when the Harper government took over from the Martin government, they took over with a $13 billion surplus that they immediately, immediately turned into a deficit. And as far as jobs go, in nine years you've created 1.3 million. In the nine years that the Liberals were in government immediately before, it was 3.2 million. So, thank you. Okay, now you have three intervention cards each candidates, and we go by the honor system where we expect you not to use them more than three times. Jeffrey, you have the floor. Oh, you've used them more than three times, have you? I'm putting mine up here, so I... Okay, <laughs> all right, go ahead, you have the floor. <coughs> you cannot create equality by taking from those who work and giving to those who do not. Social <laughs> Socialism only works until the government runs out of other people's money. Certainly, we should tax corporate profits that are sent out of Canada. But if it is invested here in Canada to create sustaining jobs paid at an adequate level to support a family and generate disposable income activity, that should be eligible for lower corporate taxes. Remember, like the electric bill, consumers pay a corporation's tax bill. So prices rise as a corporation tries to counteract taxes to maintain its profit margin. Okay, thank you. Seeing no more cards raised, we're moving on to Mike Pine to answer question number six, which is, um, yes, Mike Pine to introduce question number six, which is uh, about the concerns of Lethbridge voters. In your door knocking and other consultations with Lethbridge voters, what are the main general concerns that they want you to follow up on if you are elected? And how will you go about representing the views of the electorate in Ottawa? What I'm hearing a lot on the doors is we need a member of parliament who can actually stand up for Lethbridge, who can vote in the best interests of Lethbridge. Justin Trudeau told me personally, as, and a few others as we were having a beer one night, 
Oh, oh, we weren't smoking any drugs. No, we were just having a beer. <laughs> told me that my job is to represent Lethbridge in Ottawa and not be Ottawa's voice in Lethbridge. <laughs> with voting with the party will only be required on three particular circumstances. Uh, motions that implement our platform to uphold principles of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or confidence votes. All other votes will be free votes. We are expected to represent you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Cass, you have the floor for an intervention on this. The question is, what are the Lethbridge voters telling you when you consult with them or knock their doors? Not the party leaders. I just want to refer back to my party's policy on not having a party whip. Ms. Mr. Pine says that there's three particular occasions that he will have to vote with his party and potentially against Lethbridge. My party has no particular occasions. I will always have to represent you because that is my job. Parties are not part of our constitution for a reason. The job of an MP is to represent their constituency. Plain and simple. You might just, I'll be honest, you might disagree with some of my party's platforms, but I think we can all agree that I think I would be the best representative because I can represent you before my political party. As Mr. Pine was saying, if you think that Mr. Trudeau knows what's best for this riding, then sure, you should vote liberal. But if you think that we know what's best from people from this riding who actually have been here before, then I think that it's us that knows what's best for us. Anyone else want to intervene? Cheryl, yes, go ahead. And we are hoping you'll share with us what voters are telling you. What are they telling Thank you. Sorry. Cheryl, you have the floor. Door knocking is a foundation of any NDP campaign. We go out and we talk to voters. It's simple. It's our fancy plan. We talk to voters. So what am I hearing? I'm hearing a concern for kids' education. How are they going to afford it? How will they pay for it? Will there be a good job when they get to the end? They see the stats. They know that the average Canadian student graduates with $26,000 of debt and that the rate of youth unemployment in this country is double the rate of everyone else. I'm hearing from seniors. How am I going to survive on a pension that's not keeping pace with my expenses? How am I going to afford my medicine? Because I'm already taking less than I'm supposed to because I need it to last longer. I'm hearing from working families who are telling me that they have to choose between having a reasonable income and staying home because the cost of childcare is out of reach. I'm hearing about all these struggles and I'm also hearing hope. They know it can be different. They know that an NDP government offers progressive choices. On education, we've introduced internship programs so youth can transition. On seniors, we've introduced income supplement and on childcare, we're going to let you keep the universal benefit and also work collaboratively to provide universal, affordable childcare. Anyone else want to intervene? I see none. So we're now going to move on to the second round. And we move back to Jeffrey Cap and to answer question number 10 which deals with First Nations Peoples of Canada. 
Unresolved issues between successive Canadian governments and First Nations continue to flounder. The proposed national inquiry into murdered and missing women is not happening. Funding for education is in a shambles, and every Canadian's basic right to safe drinking water and sanitation is sadly lacking on many First Nations reserves. Where does your party stand on, proposed, on the proposed national inquiry, on funding for education, and ensuring that all Canadians have safe drinking water and basic sanitation? There should be an inquiry. There seems to be a disproportionately higher level of this happening to Aboriginal women, and we need to know why, who the perpetrators are, and address the cause. First Nations need to be free of dependence on the federal government. I'd like to see them stand on their own, the leadership fully responsible to the members under them, and First Nations people become owners of their homes and land, not just tenants, to have the dignity of ownership, paying taxes to their local government that will improve their communities. It distresses me that locally the Kainai community still has main roads that get hidden by some rain instead of being built up to stay clear. That's a part of a, a local improvement that should be underway. Why, are, uh, why do they get flooded with a simple rainfall? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else wants to intervene on that question? Okay, then let's move on to Rachel. Question number five, which deals with renewable energy. There's little doubt that eventually renewables will provide most of the world's energy. Shouldn't we prioritize our renewables in Canada now rather than wait till fossil fuels run out? Where does your party stand regarding the rapid move towards renewable energy? Thank you. Let's be clear about something from the get-go. Energy development is almost purely a provincial matter. It's actually not federal. Of course, the Conservative Party supports growth within the green energy sector. We're committed to the development of new technologies that would help us thrive and be a part of non or develop non-renewable resources. This is the nature of conservatism. We're progressive, we're innovative, we're creative. We support the development of new technologies. So that's why our Prime Minister has committed, along with the G7, to end fossil fuel use by the end of the century. <laughs> so right now, we have fossil fuels in the ground. Let's develop those. Let's be reasonable. There is not a single person in this crowd tonight who isn't wearing an oil product. And if I'm wrong on that, prove it. How'd you get here tonight? So let's be clear on something here, folks. Let's be reasonable. We have oil in the ground. It creates jobs and it helps us live our lives. Let's develop that natural resource. Let's do it in a way that is responsible. But let's also develop new technologies so that we can get away from fossil fuels in due time. But this doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. Folks, let's not be ideologues. Let's be realistic. Together, let's create an environment that will rely on renewable resources more and more. Again, it will take time. 
At the moment, I will have you know that we are not being lackadaisical on this issue. Canada benefits from one of the cleanest electricity mixes in the world, with 63% generated from renewable resources, the highest in the G7. Thank you. Cheryl, you have the floor. Thank you. The question was about the rapid move towards renewable energy. And the NDP is, of course, in favor of that. And probably that's because the rest of the world has already figured this out. Renewable energy is going to draw $8 trillion in investment in the next 25 years. That is double the amount that countries will spend on coal, natural gas, and nuclear plants. Solar energy in particular will see a $3.7 trillion surge. The cost of solar plants is expected to plunge by nearly half, eventually becoming the cheapest source of electricity in a growing number of countries. Even so, non-renewables are going to attract $4 trillion. So despite the gains in renewable energy investments, the forecast shows fossil fuels will continue to comprise a substantial slice of the global power sector. So you don't need to tell us that we're going to get rid of it. That is a false promise. The question is, which side do you want to be on? Clearly, the NDP is choosing the progressive side of renewable energy, not only for the environmental benefits, but because there is evidence to show that employment in green jobs is growing at a rate of 18% a year. Thank you. Jeffrey, you have the floor. Renewable energy must meet the test of itself, not requiring the expenditure of non-renewable energy in its implementation and its ongoing development and expansion. If we have to burn fossil fuels to balance out the irregular generation of a wind farm, it eliminates the benefit of that wind farm. Also, there is not a 100% totally accepted consensus that wind farms are harmless. They are a point of contention and we should resolve that contention amicably, solve concerns, respect property owners before plunging ahead with them. Certainly, we should be encouraging the installation of solar collectors in all construction to harness this otherwise unused energy to all possible extent. Geothermal energy, even at a low level, would reduce fossil fuel consumption. Okay. Moving on then, we're moving on to um, Cass McMillan, and he drew question number nine. And this question deals with security issues, terrorism, and civil liberty. Terrorist threats are often in the news. Measures and laws, including Bill C-51, have been passed recently in, a, in an attempt to, to curb and punish the perpetrators. But many believe that Bill C-51 infringes on our civil liberty. What is your party's stand on Bill C-51? In the question, <coughs> it says terrorist threats are often in the news. Ali, everyone just to think for a couple of seconds, when was the last terrorist threat on Canadian soil? It was quite a long time ago. In Canada, we do not have an immediate terrorist threat. No, because in Ottawa, it was right down the street from me. In Ottawa, he was not part of an international organization based on terrorism. 
However, the reason why we disagree, because my party voted against Bill C-51, regardless, because it makes us less safe. Before Bill C-51, or rather in Bill C-51, it cuts corners to expedite time. However, by cutting those corners, you are missing a lot of, of important barriers that protect Canadian citizens' rights, um, as well as lacking the accountability needed for the oversight. That's why the Green Party was the first party to oppose Bill C-51, and then, credit where credit is due, the NDP also came on board and opposed it as well. Thank you, Mike. As some of you, uh, Mike, Mike, as some of you, as most of you realize, my party has taken a lot of flack over this, but the situation is actually fairly easy. First of all, we repeal the undemocratic provisions and replace them with parliamentary oversight, mandatory legislative reviews, and narrow the overly broad definitions. The first duty of government is to protect its people. The Conservatives believe in a terrorist behind every bush. The NDP see no terrorists at all. The truth, I'm sure, is probably somewhere in the middle. Thank you. I've lost, do we have any power? Yes, we're back again. Anyone else? No, then we'll move on to Cheryl Hayden. And Cheryl, you drew number seven, which reads, well, the question deals with immigration, mm -hmm. with temporary foreign workers and refugees. Recently, immigration, temporary foreign workers and refugee issues have made the headlines repeatedly. Would Canada be better off with immigrants rather than temporary foreign workers? And should Canada be doing more to help with the current international refugee crisis? What is your party's position on immigration, temporary foreign workers, and the current refugee crisis? That's a good question. A few days ago, someone showed me a picture, and it was a street in Syria before the war began. And I've never been to Syria, but apart from the palm trees, this could have been any street in Lethbridge. There were modest, middle-class homes, families milling about. And then there was a second picture, which showed the same street after it had been war-torn. It was reduced to rubble. And I'm sure that those people who live this terror, to them it seems apocalyptic. Entire cities are being destroyed, and we have to remember that those cities were filled with real people, with real families. And during the last four years, the civil war in Syria has displaced 12 million people. Of the four million refugees who fled Syria, almost half of them, 1.6 million, are children. I'm reminded of when I worked for immigration as a settlement officer. People who arrived here were afraid, confused, but they were also hopeful. And when you stand across from someone who's been forcibly displaced from their home, who may have watched their family members die, when all that they have left is what they have in one suitcase, when you watch them struggle and work hard and hang on to that hope, you want to help them. And you're amazed and in awe of someone who has experienced so much suffering can laugh again. 
but many do, and we can help with that. The Conservatives would have you believe that ISIS is going to infiltrate these fearful, brutalized victims, and if we allow these people refuge, that's not worth applauding. Then, like we did after uh, we let the Dutch, after the Second World War, or the more than 100,000 Vietnamese boat people that we welcomed in the late 70s and 80s, the national security is at risk. This is fear-mongering. And my personal values of compassion, helping, and faith, which I am sure many of you share, become mixed in with absolute disbelief, disgust, and a plea for people, check the facts. Follow the evidence. These people are not washing up on our shores. They are vetted through credible channels, and if we are so concerned, we can enlist our RCMP and other intelligence agencies to ensure that these forcibly displaced refugees are the people <coughs> who they claim to be. And do not forget who we are mm. as Canadians. Thank you. Do any other candidates wish to intervene on this one? Cheryl, you have the floor. My name's Rachel. Sorry. Apologies. Rachel, you have the floor. Is it truly compassion to put the safety of our own citizens at risk? With regards to the Syrian refugee crisis, National polls show that Canada agrees with the Conservative Party's decision on this issue. Our Prime Minister has said that this crisis must be addressed at three levels. One, at the root, by confronting ISIS on their territory. Two, by providing humanitarian aid. And three, by refugee resettlement in a reasonable and responsible manner that protects the citizens of our country. While the NDP would engage in a reckless plan of bringing 10,000 refugees into Canada by Christmas without even as much as vetting them through a security process, we are opposed. <laughs> we have agreed to bring in refugees, but we will insist that there is a proper security vetting process in order to make sure that the safety of our citizens is cared for first and foremost. Thank you. Okay, any other candidates wish to intervene on that question? If not, we'll move on to the last SAGPA question, which is for Mike Pine. Question number three. And it deals with federal government subsidies to the fossil fuel and mining industry. Federal government subsidizes fossil fuel and mining companies to the tune of billions annually, according to the International Institute for Sustainable Development. These subsidies come in the form of tax breaks, royalty reductions, loan guarantees, lax regulations, and building infrastructure that supports the industry. Where does your party stand on subsidies to the fossil fuel and mining industry? I don't think it would be an understatement to say that the oil and gas industry 
is of great importance to Alberta. If I were a betting man, I'd bet that almost every one of us in this room has a family member, friend, or neighbor that's involved in this industry. I have two sons and a son-in-law. One of them's right over there. I'm proud to be part of a party that has already focused its mind to make an investment in tomorrow's industry, the industry of renewable resources and sustainable development. That transition over time will gradually phase out subsidies for oil and gas. Thank you. Any interventions, anyone? Okay, well that concludes our round, two rounds of SAG for questions. Yes, Rachel. Thank you. Again, folks, I would ask for us to be realistic and, and to be reasonable about this. I believe that it's our responsibility as government to invest in both our environment, making sure that we're securing a vibrant future, while at the same time caring for our present day economy. And so this is the challenge that governments all over the world face. And again, I would have to say to you that we have a resource that naturally occurs in the earth and it is there and it can be developed and it can be used for us. At the same time, we absolutely need to be investing in new technologies and make sure that we're progressing forward. Right now, the Liberal and the NDP government would propose a carbon taxing scheme. What this would do to you is it would cause gas to go up, it would cause daily services to go up, it would cause your shoes to go up, it would cause the jackets you wear to go up. Everything that's attached to an oil product that you use in your life, which again, I will guarantee is everyone in this room, would go up. And so what this would also do is it would actually kill jobs, which again, at the end of the day, every single Canadian family needs a good job. Let's take care of both, our environment and our economy. Okay, Cheryl also intervening on this question, go ahead. I have three cards. This is my third card, I think. Is it not? I have five cards? No, you have three cards. And we, as I said before, we're relying on an honor system yeah. that you just use, three <laughs> use your card three times. Well, yeah, I have three cards, right? So have you raised it this twice before? Or? This is the third time. I think. This is the third time. Go ahead. You have okay. the floor. Thank you. Pardon me? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Go ahead, Cheryl, you have the floor. Thank you. We want to be fair, and I appreciate the passion in the room. However, I am a researcher by profession, and I tell people all the time, check the facts, okay? They're out there, they come from credible sources, there are librarians that can help you. Unless you work at the research station, then your job's been cut. This idea of a carbon tax that has been presented is absolutely not true. The NDP is supporting a cap-and-trade system. It is, however, revenue neutral. If you drive down the highway and you throw your garbage out the window, the car behind you shouldn't get the ticket. The polluter should pay. 
It's a pretty simple concept. It's revenue neutral because the revenue collected from a cap and trade system will all go back to the provinces. That's fair, and that's what the NDP is about, fair. Okay, thank you very much. So that concludes the SAG for questions. We're now going to move on to the quickfire debate. We'll see how we go on this one. They're five-minute rounds, and our timekeeper is putting five minutes onto his clock. And um, I'll only intervene to, I'll announce the topic to start with very briefly. And then candidates, you have the floor, all of you at the same time. <laughs> okay, this is what happens, as you know, it happens in the House of Commons, Prime Minister's question period is all about this question, all about this, this uh, debate. So, the topic for the first round is the economy, and by that I mean various aspects of the economy, diversification of the economy, particularly relevant to Southern Alberta, balanced budgets, deficits, jobs. Go ahead, you have five minutes. You've lost 10 seconds. Go ahead. As the, uh, the economy's tanked. It hasn't been good. Uh, we all know that. We've had eight years of deficits. We've had we've taxes, tax increases for the last five or six years. The other two parties, the New Democrats and the Conservatives, are talking austerity. The International Monetary Fund, 288 nations that set uh, e economic policy for the world all say austerity is contractionary. It will make a bad economy worse and it'll destroy one that's already bad. We don't need austerity. We're the only party that's pushing for stimulus. We need to get our people working. What gets an economy working? People spending money, consumer consumer confidence. How about putting businesses in daycare involving so you can to go to work. businesses investing in themselves? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're too Come on, know, let's find your voices, candidates. Come on, let's. Okay. What do you say? Do you agree <laughs> with him? Okay, what we need, what we need is a surplus budget. We need a surplus budget because we have an enormous debt being left to our children and grandchildren. We need a surplus budget paying off that debt like a mortgage, and at the same time use Bank of Canada interest-free loans to governments and crown corporations to create infrastructure projects which will stimulate our economy. You can put people to work, companies to work, borrowing money and putting people to work, buying cars, buying homes, building things. That will generate taxes that will help pay off these loans. That's what we need, economic activity that doesn't have an interest charge attached to it. So I would absolutely agree with my colleague over here to the right, um, of course, right? Um, because he's making sense. He's speaking common sense. Our government just released our budget with a $5 billion surplus. And it's easy to have a we surplus. We a balanced budget yeah. with a $5 billion yeah. surplus, yeah. one year ahead of time. Now, let me tell you how we did that, folks. Let me tell you how they how did, did that. It. Cut we services, manipulate the sale the of the uh, General Motors shares. Uh, Cut costs. Put the budget out late. Re That's how we did it. 
take That's money that it. was already allocated to veterans and to people like that and then just take it back and not use it. That's how you, that's how you yeah. fake, that's how you fake a surplus. Yeah, raid the EI fund, cancel so right the now, benefits from pension plans. Canada enjoys There's the best job There's a long list of how you can records. balance a budget unethically. Wow. They are there, exactly, check the facts, They are folks. there as a balanced budget that was put mm -hmm. on the table with a $5 billion surplus that benefits all of Canadians. A why? budget because that came out late. Because it's gonna more jobs Rachel, for why Canadians. why did the budget have to come out late? Because we had to wait for the sale of the General Motors stocks in order to use that money to balance the budget. I'm with, I'm with Cheryl. You can't, you can't call it a surplus a fully if you gave up capital. We have a budget framework, which I was invited to Ottawa to participate in that discussion because I understand finance and I've had my feet on the ground with practical solutions. Pardon me? Yeah, you Pardon have me? to have an operating, you can't, you can't have a surplus by selling things you can only sell once. That doesn't create a, pro, a surplus. That's just a one-time boost. Candidates, we, we expected you to be debating each other. The audience will have their time. <laughs> We're trying so to be go polite. ahead, come on. We're trying to be too polite, I think. I think that moving forward, yes. <laughs> we can learn from the previous government, as well as governments beforehand, that cutting social spending doesn't necessarily help in the long term. So yes, they did have a surplus in the last year, However, we should realize that there are times for deficits, such as the recession, such as um, extreme environmental um, catastrophes, or et cetera. But we also have to realize that a responsible government balances the books when they can, when there's not those extreme circumstances. It should come as no surprise that it's an election year and we finally get a balanced budget and a surplus. Surprise, surprise. If, and if there were more... I believe if what there substantiates more, this balanced budget, Mr. Pine, is the fact that, that we have the best job muzzled, creation records we since would 2006. Have this information. We have the best Thank economic growth much. out of any G7 country, and we have the best income growth out of any G7 country. That's a sustainable okay. record. Very good, very good candidates. You're finally warming up, and we're going to move on now to our next topic. And this is a very tame topic. You'll be able to manage this one without any difficulty because it's about accountability. <laughs> and I'm talking about lying in Parliament, public officials' expense accounts, cover up. So go ahead. You can look at my expense account anytime you want, and if you have suggestions how to keep it down, I want to hear them. They may not be practical, but I still want to hear them. Tell me, tell me how we can cut our costs. We, I think that we need to decrease the expense of accounts of MPs. You might recall a few, you might, make, you might recall a few years ago where our current MP ended up doubling his expense account compared to the Fort McLeod writings conservative MP. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's a half hour drive. We also need to cut the size of the House of Commons. 338 is ridiculous. In about the year 2045, we'll have as many MPs as the 
the United States, with nine times the population, has House of Representatives. That's ridiculous. Why do we need so many MPs? Stick to 300, no higher. Boy, he's left you speechless over on my left. No. <laughs> over on the left. Just a sec. I'm just getting The Liberal the Party of Canada was the first party to make all of its uh, uh, expenses by, their different, by the different uh, members of parliament public. All right? And after we did that, the other parties followed. Thank goodness. Thank well... When it comes to the Senate, let's get to that topic then. <laughs> accountability? This accountability with the Senate is a pretty uh, strong topic in today's um, media, let's go with. I don't think that it makes sense for an appointed representative of our country, for there to be over a hundred of them, for them to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in wages, and then for many senators to be caught in by lying by extorting money, et cetera, um, when they're just appointed. So we need to do something about our Senate. We need to either abolish it or elect it. Let's burst, let's burst the balloon of the delusion that we can get rid of it that easily. You can't, to get rid of the, to abolish the Senate, to abolish the Senate, thank you, you have to have unanimous consent of every single province in this country. And it ain't gonna happen, folks. We, uh, most of us remember the battle we went through in 1982 to get the, the Constitution that we have. Do we really want to open that? No, we don't. The Senate has a value. Right now, it's broken. It needs to be fixed. But we do not have to open up the Constitution to do that. So uh, I have some facts that will make my conservative friends very unhappy. <laughs> the Parliamentary Bureau Chief produced a report, and uh, you want to talk about accountability. The we've had elections in this country for a long time, and in the last three elections, the Conservative government has been tried by courts in this country and found guilty of crimes uh, that included fraud, um, pardon me, doer, sorry. So if we want to talk about accountability, that was the platform that your leader ran on. Stephen Harper ran on that platform, accountability and transparency, and um, has probably proven to be the biggest hypocrite in Canadian history. Three elections in a row, the Conservative government has cheated. In 2006, do you want me to go through the list here? How many minutes do we have? So one of the things that I find very interesting is okay, that there's over $3 million dollars yes, that were spent out of taxpayers' yes, pockets yes, by the NDP party that has not been returned to our taxpayers. Tried in the kangaroo is court. anybody asking about that? Is anyone curious? Where's that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's talk about calling an Ra early election Ra Rachel, then. Rachel, $2.7 that the Conservatives say that the NDP owes 
is but a spit in the bucket compared to what's been lost by the Conservative government. Thank you very much. By calling an earlier election with an earlier writ period, that means that uh, federal parties are allowed to spend more money. The problem with this is that by spending more money, it's the taxpayers who actually reimburse the parties. 50%. 50%, thank you. And that is where a longer election campaign is coming from, is you guys. Okay, thank you very much, candidates. Now we've got just one more very quick round, a very quick, minute, uh, quick round on something that's very dear to a lot of us in this room, pensions. Okay, they're not enough. CPP is, is not it, a nest egg. Is it oh, possible sorry. to live on the pensions that our government is paying us? Go ahead, candidates. CPP is not a nest egg. Workers pay in, the same money goes right back out to the beneficiaries. There's nothing being saved. And the rate of, the number of employed, employed people to pensioners is decreasing used to be 30 working people for every pensioner. It's getting so close, what, three to one? Where are you gonna sustain a pension plan with so many people benefiting and so few people putting in? We need what are called personal income security accounts where you pay in, your employer matches it, and it's yours. You take it with you to your next employer and you can draw from it from whatever you need, up to 15% a year for, for unemployment or health needs. That's what we need, your own account, you take it with you. We would meet the commitment to the existing pensioners who don't have these accounts, but we need something better for the future, so you keep your own money. Just a, a point of clarification here. Because I used to own a business and I get CPP, because as an employer I paid it, and as an employee working now, I pay as well. So CPP is fully funded by the employers and the employees who pay for it. So this is not a government expense. The but government likes to use CPP as a little bit of a, I don't know, honey pot that they can dip slush into. Slush fund. But it's not being saved for you. It's not, that money it is, is totally not gonna be there for you, for you when you retire. It's already been paid out. It's an ongoing flow through. Pay in today if you're working, pay out today if you're, if you're a pensioner. It's not gonna be there. It's not gonna no. be saved for you in the bank Jeffrey, if you interest. put your money in the bank, you get this thing called interest. Yes, and but that the, the, the CPP doesn't more. work that way. Yes, it does work no, that it way. Yes, it does work that way. I guess way. where I disagree is I'm not exactly sure that it's the government's responsibility to be taking my money out of my pocket and investing it and then returning it to me. Now, I understand the CPP system that we have in place right now, and I do believe that it should be honoured. But in addition to that, I believe that as hard-working, entrepreneurial Canadians who are smart... I believe that it is our responsibility to take our excess money, to invest it wisely, and to have it returned to us in our retirement years. I agree. I know. Everybody sit down. Okay. Everybody sit down. Don't fall off your chair, okay? I'm going to agree with what Rachel said, except for one word. We are going to take our excess money. Again, there's no evidence to show people have this excess money. RRSP contributions right. in this country are never maximized. TFSA is never maximized. 93% of people don't do it. Never? RSP? Never. 
Sorry, I'd, sorry. I you pride yourself in being a researcher. Yes, I am. No one in all of Canada, all 36 million people from coast to coast to coast, not a single one of them has maximized their TFSA investment. And Where Rachel, are your facts, you Cheryl? pride yourself on being a good listener. Sure, and what the I majority said was the TFSA limits have never been maximized. Only 7% of people have maximized. So that's right, they, that's Sorry, that's never? That's never. Only 7% can. I'm not going to argue syntax with you. That's a big word. Look. Let's get down to the crux of the matter. Many of us here are baby boomers. While this government that's currently in power gives tax breaks to not only the rich but to corporations like $52 billion in the last so many years, us baby boomers are supposed to work an extra two years because our pension plan can't afford it. That's not right. Plus, plus, Oh, yeah, okay, well, 65 is the age where it's supposed to be, where it's always been, and I think that's, we've all, we've all planned on that in our lives, and that's where we want it to be, period. I think that we can all Good, agree. Good, then I can enjoy 20 more years of I think that we can broke. all agree that when it comes to pension, this isn't a problem that is in my near future. <laughs> no kidding. However, I do believe that people who have worked their butts off for 40, 50 possibly years, that they, get, that they deserve a guaranteed livable income to live out the rest of their life without having to pay um, large bills and to be able to have enough food for shelter and, um, for, sorry, enough money for shelter and food. And medication, absolutely. Okay, candidates, thank you for those three quick-fire rounds. Now, we're now moving on to a 10-minute break, and please be back in your seats by 8.30. We will start promptly at 8.30. Thank you.
but hey, honey.